Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 1. If you're using the church Bible, that's going to be on page 53. This morning we're beginning a new series looking at the book of Exodus. And it's probably going to take us the better part of the rest of the year. Uh, we as a church are committed to a couple things. One is continuously working our way through books of the Bible. That forces us to talk about verses that maybe we would rather not talk about. Uh, it forces us to see all of God's counsel in His Word. But we're also committed, because we're committed to the full counsel of God's Word, to varying our diet. So in my time here at Wiser Lake Chapel, we've gone through three New Testament letters. We finished the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we did Joshua, an Old Testament narrative, Amos, an Old Testament prophet, and now we're turning to the Pentateuch. But also, Exodus is a great book. Uh, Genesis tells us about God, the Creator, God who calls Abraham and his family into covenant relationship with him, but it's really in Exodus that we see a new aspect of God's character come to light, that God is the one who redeems his people from bondage. And that's the God we still know. We know God is our creator and our redeemer. In the opening chapters of Exodus that we're about to read, we find God's people exploited and oppressed under the tyrannical rule of the king in Egypt. And at least at first glance, God seems to be nowhere to be found. Here now as I read Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrath, the other named Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word. This opening chapter of Exodus sets before us two truths that I want to reflect on this morning. The first truth is that God's plan cannot be thwarted. The second truth is that the fear of God is the beginning of courage. First, in this narrative, we see a contest between two plans, two ambitions, the Pharaoh's plan on one hand, God's plan on the other. And we see that God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's plan cannot be thwarted. Kids, I know thwarted, it's a funny word, T-H-W-A-R-T, but it's also funny sounding, and so I thought it would be a fun word to say uh, this morning. God's plan cannot be thwarted. Exodus opens, uh, it's a distinct book with its own plot arc and its own themes and structure and motifs, but it's also a sequel to Genesis. And so, you know, like a TV show has the last time recap to remind you what happened. Exodus opens in the same way with this recap that Jacob and his 12 sons and all their household, 70 people in all, had come down to Egypt. And in the understatement of the century, it says, remember, Joseph was already in Egypt. And of course, a lot gets glossed over there how he wound up in Egypt. Then verse 6 cuts forward. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation. Verse 1 and 7, actually, they both use the word, uh, or the phrase, sons of Israel. Uh, in verse 1, our Pew Bible translates it, the sons of Israel, literally his 12 sons went down to Egypt with him. Verse 7, our Pew Bible translates it, the, the people of Israel, because now the sons of Israel have become a nation. They've become a people group. And so sons of Israel, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ethnic uh, a, a group rather than 12 children. Verse 7 drives the point home. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This verse, verse 7, it alludes to two key moments in the book of Genesis. First, in Genesis 1, remember, God creates humans in his own image, and then he blesses humans like this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 1, we see God's basic purpose, his, his creation intention for the world, that the earth would be filled with people who bear his image and know him and live together with him, in the land that he's prepared for them, and reflect his character to the world round about. Every human life is meant to be a witness to the God who gives life. My voice keeps cracking this morning. I don't, maybe deeper next week. We'll see uh, how that plays out. Um, those three key words from Genesis 1, though, fill, multi, uh, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill, they're repeated in verse 7, do you see that? It's, it's the uh, uh, word 1, 3, and 5 in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful. They multiplied. The land was full of them. Okay, God's creation purpose is continuing here in the beginning of Exodus. 
Of course, uh, Genesis also goes on to say that we have all turned away from God. Instead of being God-focused, we become self-focused. Instead of giving life like God, Genesis depicts a world that becomes filled with violence and pain and evil. Humans all still bear God's image, but we no longer live in a way that reflects his character. So what does God do? Does he give up on the world? Does he give up on his plan to have a world filled with people, his people who live with him and reflect his character? Not at all. God's plan cannot be thwarted. So what does God do? Well, Exodus 1-7 alludes to a second key moment in the book of Genesis. What does God do finding the world filled with violence? He finds a couple of pagan senior citizens whose lives have been marked by infertility. And he calls them and says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God calls Abraham and Sarah and makes their descendants into a great nation under God's blessing. And in turn, that nation will be a blessing to all the peoples, all the families of the earth. And now Exodus 1-7 is telling us this is coming to fruition. God's plan to restore creation that was broken by our sin is becoming fulfilled. God is blessing the people of Israel. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're filling the land. But, verse 8 tells us, a new king comes to power who did not know Joseph. He didn't remember all that Joseph had done to save Egypt through the famine. He didn't know all that Joseph had done to serve the previous Pharaoh. And in fact, God's blessing on Israel frightens this new king. If God's intention is to bless Israel, to give life, to fulfill his creation purposes, this new Pharaoh becomes a figure of anti-blessing of anti-life, anti-creation. In verses 9 and 10, we can see his motives here. Uh, the growing people of Israel frightens Pharaoh. What if they turn against us? But then, what if they escape? You see the dilemma? On the one hand, they need Israel to be part of their labor force. Their economy depends on it. They want Israel in the land. But on the other hand, can they really trust Israel to vote for them? What happens when the next election comes on? How can we trust them? We've got to do something here. Unfortunately, this line of reasoning is all too familiar from our own politics. And it should be a warning to us. Too close of an alliance between God's people and political power, it can change so quickly. In one generation, those who protected God's people, a new uh, leaders can rise up and oppress God's people as it suits their purposes. Well, initially, uh, Pharaoh proposes, let's deal shrewdly with these people. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Uh, verse 11, we see Pharaoh's so-called wisdom is the way of oppression. Therefore, because the Israelites are too many, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. These taskmasters are assigned specifically to afflict Israel. This word can mean to humiliate, uh, to depress Israel, to stress them out. Uh, farmers know if, you're, if, you're, if your cows aren't reproducing, then you look for, is there something stressing the herd, right? And, and Pharaoh kind of flips this on its head. It says, well, 
we, they're reproducing too much, so let's stress them out. And so kind of reading between the lines, they say, you know what, let's get all the worst bosses in the entire country, you know, all the jerks in the country, and let's put them together and put them in charge of the, of the Israelites. And they're going to become so stressed out and so exhausted from their work and so depressed working for these jerks that they're really not going to be interested in procreative uh, activities. Um, and the work he puts them to, ironically, is to build store cities. Which that, remember, was exactly Joseph's plan to preserve Israel through famine, was to build store cities. And yet now it's being used as a way to oppress Joseph's people. Pharaoh's oppressive anti-creation dream is apparently a land filled with storage units, empty of children. Uh, and if you drive around certain parts of the county, it's a frightening image that we see around us. Land filled with storage units, empty of children. But it is Pharaoh's plan, not God's plan, that is thwarted. Verse 12 says, the more that the Israelites were oppressed, the more they tried to, to uh, uh, oppress, the more they tried to stress them out and depress them, uh, actually the more they multiplied and spread abroad. This gives us an interesting perspective. Having children as an act of faith and hope. Now, I, I know some of us, like Abraham and Sarah, we know the pain of uh, struggling with fertility. We know what it's like to say, let's just quit trying. This is too painful to deal with. And as we read through the Bible, it's clear that God has a special uh, softness for people in that situation, that, they, that, he, that he cares for them. At the same time, we see that God's fundamental creation desire is to have a world filled with image bearers. God creates, and then he calls humans to procreate. Despite the Pharaoh's affliction, shifting political circumstances, Israel continues having children. God's creative intention continues. And in our own day, many are hesitant to have children. Either they're well off, and they say children will be, uh, you know, an inconvenience, and that's right, children are inconvenient. Uh, they would disrupt our standard of living and the way we do things, and that's true, children do disrupt our lives. Uh, others worry that they won't be able to support kids. Okay, uh, uh, you know, we, we should be uh, uh, committed to the sanctity of life, and yet we also need to recognize that part of the reason uh, many people give for having abortions is because they feel like they can't sustain or support children. Some people might even wonder, is it right to bring children into such a broken, uncertain world? And yet, Exodus challenges us to see having children as an act of hope in the midst of a broken world, born out of our trust in the goodness of the Creator God, whose plan cannot be thwarted. Well, now that Israel continues to multiply, it's not just Pharaoh that's afraid. We're told that actually all of, is, uh, all of Egypt is filled with dread. Uh, dreads, you know, it's more than fear. It's a sort of like existential worry overcoming them. At first, Israel is simply oppressed with bad taskmasters, hard tasks. Now they are forced into slavery. In verse 14, the word our church Bibles translates as work is the same root word that's translated as service. Uh, verse 7 describes Israel multiplying, being fruitful with five different words. Now, five times in verse 14, this word service is repeated to describe Israel's bondage. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick 
and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And this sets up one of the key themes of the whole book of Exodus. Who will Israel serve? Pharaoh forces Israel to serve him. And in fact, Pharaoh claimed to be a God on earth that he's forcing Israel to serve them. But do you remember what God keeps sending Moses to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may serve me. The trajectory of the book of Exodus is from serving Pharaoh as slaves to serving God in worship. In fact, Exodus, as we work through this book, is teaching us that true freedom is not about casting off all masters or the absence of any external constraint whatsoever on our choices. Rather, Exodus says true freedom is worshiping the true God. True freedom is about serving the right Lord. We become more free, not by casting off external authority and serving ourselves, but rather we become more free as we serve God and worship Him. We become more enslaved as we serve any creature in place of God, including ourselves. We'll talk more about this theme as, as we continue to work through the book of Exodus, but we're getting queued up to it right here. Who will Israel serve? And serving Pharaoh brings oppression, slavery. Serving God brings freedom. Why does this happen to Israel? Why does this happen? If Israel is central to God's plan, and God's plan cannot be thwarted, his purposes for creation, why does Israel end up in slavery? Of course, we ask the same question about our own lives, don't we? If God's plan can't be thwarted, why is this happening to me? Why do I find myself in this situation? You know, if, if God's desire is, is for a flourishing world and to bless his people, why is my situation so broken and hopeless? Why does God allow oppression and suffering? We might think, well, maybe Israel went to Egypt and they shouldn't have, so they kind of are going against God's will. That would be an easy explanation. But that isn't the case. Uh, Genesis 46, when Jacob was about to enter Egypt, God says to him, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. They enter Egypt following God's command, trusting God's promise that God himself will go down with them, that God himself will bring them up again. But that only makes the question more difficult. Why does this plan involve so much pain? Exodus isn't interested in easy answers. God's ultimate plan is to bless his people and all people through them. But God's plan doesn't mean immunity for God's people from hardship or suffering. God's people are suffering and God lets it happen. Indeed, it seems to be part of his plan. We don't understand why, but we shouldn't be surprised. After all, we just celebrated at the very center of God's plan to redeem all creation, to fill it with image bearers who reflect his character and live knowing him. The very center of that plan is a cross and a tomb. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see that God's plan involves pain and suffering. God sees the brokenness of his world, all that pain and suffering of history, and he says, I myself will go down with you, 
and I will also bring you up again. In Jesus, that's precisely what God does. God himself comes down with us into the midst of all the brokenness, the suffering, the affliction, the oppression, the pain, and the death. But then Jesus rises up again and brings us with him. So at the center of God's plan is a cross and a grave, we shouldn't be surprised to find that God's people on either side of that center, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, encounter opposition, suffering, oppression. But we remember in the midst of our trials that God's plan cannot be thwarted. Well, Pharaoh initially tries shrewd labor practices and then enslaving Israel, but God's plan cannot be thwarted. And so in verse 15, Pharaoh summons the Hebrew midwives. Um, uh, it could either be the, the midwives who serve the Hebrews or the midwives who are themselves Hebrews. Uh, and it's ambiguous. It could be either way, but it's neither here nor there. He tries to implement a new secret plan, though. He says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, you know, when, when, the, when the baby's just first coming out, as soon as you figure out if it's a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, let him live. Ironically, the Pharaoh is worried about Israel's sons and wants them killed. But what we're going to see in this chapter and then in next, the next chapter, it's actually the daughters who consistently thwart Pharaoh's plans. These two midwives... Uh, uh, Moses' mother and, and his sister, uh, Miriam, and then Pharaoh's own daughter all together thwart Pharaoh's genocidal plans. Well, in the midwife's response to Pharaoh, we see a second truth in this passage. The fear of God is the beginning of courage. The fear of God is the beginning of courage. Like the uh, Tiananmen Square tank man with his grocery bags, all that stands between Pharaoh and all of his armies and the people of God is these two midwives. It's not that these midwives are anti-government, okay? They're not driving around with an impeach Pharaoh bumper sticker on their chariot or donkey or whatever they ride around in. Uh, as far as we can tell, they don't have like a deep-seated Israel versus Egypt mentality. But the question is, will they fear Pharaoh or God? Who will they fear? Verse 17 tells us, the midwives feared God, and so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. They fear the God whose plans cannot be thwarted, and therefore they do not fear the Pharaoh or the might of Egypt's armies or any harm that might come to them. See, in life we oftentimes find ourselves in the middle of a battle of fears, who are we going to fear? What, what fears are going to drive us? And we're taught throughout Scripture, but here in this story as well, that the fear of God drives out other fears. The fear of God is the, is the beginning of courage. Uh, you might well fear jumping out of a second-story window, and you probably should. That's not good. You know, it's dangerous. You shouldn't jump out of second-story windows. But if your house is on fire... There's a greater fear in the house, and so you might jump out of the window, right? Uh, breaking your legs is better than dying in a fire. And so uh, the greater fear drives out the lesser fear. Courage is about fearing the right things and not fearing the wrong things. And that's a good general rubric, but it also applies at the deepest level to our sort of existential questions about fear. 
if we stand in awe and fear of the God who created all things, whose plans cannot be thwarted, who is the sovereign Lord over every situation, then there really is nothing else to fear at the sort of fundamental deep level. That doesn't mean we become reckless or rash or foolish. Uh, we still shouldn't jump out of second story windows for no reason. We still run away from fires. But all of our fears are put into perspective if we fear God. Okay, the fear of God is the foundation, the beginning of courage. Because we know that the God, uh, if we fear the God who knows how many hairs are on each of our heads, how many seconds are in each of our lives, then we don't need to fear anything else. So the question then for us is, who are we going to fear? Are we going to fear God or political powers or oppressive bosses or domineering family members? The midwives fear God. It's the foundation of their courage. I love the midwife's example, though, because it, it reminds us that God's plan works out through simple, the simple faithfulness of ordinary people. It's an important lesson. Uh, when we look around, we see exploitation, oppression, genocide, those sorts of things in our world. Our first reaction oftentimes is we need some sort of a political fix for this. Okay, the government needs to do something. And yet, uh, how do we see God work? As in this example, as in so many examples, God is working through the ordinary faithfulness of ordinary people. And so if you think, I'm just an ordinary person, what can I do about the problems I see around us? No, I'm just an ordinary person. That's good. That's the kind of person that God works through, the simple faithfulness of ordinary people. And indeed, here's one of the, the, the other ironies in the story. is uh, uh, Scholars today debate which pharaoh this would have been because his name is not recorded. And so, you know, is it this pharaoh or that pharaoh? And yet the names of these two midwives are preserved. And around the world, you know, every Christian church has a Bible with their names in it. It's the simple, ordinary faithfulness of these two women that preserves God's people and so uh, uh, their names in turn are preserved. Okay, a, a, a brief comment and then, and then we'll come into an end here, so uh, bear with me. Throughout Christian history, this passage has raised questions about lying. Okay, the Pharaoh realizes that his plan has been thwarted, so he summons the, uh, the midwives, and what do they say? They say, well, these, these Hebrew women, they're vigorous. Uh, literally, they're, they're, the, they're lively. They're full of life. And of course, that's God's blessing. It's the blessing of life. They're full of life, so they give birth before we get there. Uh, and, and that could be true. We have a friend who delivered uh, his son uh, waiting for the midwife to show up at their house. So I mean, this sort of thing does happen. But... Uh, at best, it's only a half-truth because verse 17 already told us plainly they didn't do what the Pharaoh said because they feared God. So, so what do we make of this? Well, in the Christian tradition, there's basically two positions. Um, one position is they didn't lie at all. I, I, I think they're at least, they're playing fast and loose with the truth at, at, at best, okay? But so then the two main positions are either they lied at, you know, the fearing God was good, the preserving the boys was good, they shouldn't have lied, but, you know, overall... Two out of three ain't bad, that kind of an attitude. Or, um, or it's, well, in certain situations like this, we're actually, it's not only okay to lie, but we're even obligated to lie. And, th and this is a pressing issue. Um, in Holland, when, when people were hiding Jews, uh, they struggled with this question. Is it okay to lie to SS soldiers coming, or, you know, uh, troops coming to our door? It's been a pressing question at various points in church history. 
Well, I, I'm not going to solve it all for you. I think it's probably an issue of the liberty of our consciences. And so some of us may feel, no matter what, I'm not going to lie and God will preserve me. And in fact, there's stories of people telling the truth and God nevertheless preserving them in those difficult circumstances. Others of us may say, you know what? Uh, preserving life is, is, is actually more important in this situation. And so it's the right thing to do. And, and that, you know, if you feel wrong, lying, don't lie. If you feel like, okay, this is what I have to do, then do that. And, uh, but two comments. I'm not just going to leave it totally up to you uh, on this. First, there's a big difference between someone who delights in the truth and hates falsehood and nevertheless lies to protect innocent life. Okay, there's a big difference between someone in that situation and someone who's looking for the thinnest possible pretense to justify playing fast and loose with the truth. Our basic disposition towards the truth is the fundamental thing. And if, if Christ comes and he says, I am the truth, then we as Christians need to be people who are known for our truthfulness. Okay, our word should be reliable. So that's one thing. And, and if we do find ourselves in a situation where we need to lie to protect life, it's, it's the great exception, not, um, not the rule. Uh, second, though, of course, this lying is not to save face. It's certainly not lying to hurt another person, but it's to protect the innocent lives of these Israelite boys. But it also keeps the Pharaoh himself from committing this horrible atrocity. So it keeps him from, from sinning. Uh, uh, as well. So there's, uh, you know, those, there's kind of some guidelines here, uh, hopefully. Uh, if, you're, you know, if you have more questions about lying, we can talk during coffee time in a minute here. Uh, the episode ends, though, with the responses of God on the one hand and Pharaoh on the other to the, continued, to the midwives' actions uh, uh, and preserving these Hebrew boys. God's response we see in verses 20 and 21. God d dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. His purpose continues. Earlier, their multiplying seems to just be basically a natural thing that's happening. Uh, it, it never tells us earlier in the chapter that God's doing anything. Yet here at the very end, kind of gives us a peek behind the curtain. And it's saying this is God's blessing. Children is an act of faith. Uh, but it's also God's blessing. There's something really beautiful in verse 21. Getting married, starting a family, it's a perfectly ordinary thing that happens every day, and yet it is also a gift of God. Not deserved, not earned, but graciously given as a blessing to these midwives. God's response continues his creative, life-giving plan. But Pharaoh's response continues his anti-creation, anti-blessing anti-life plan. Pharaoh tried shrewd labor practice, then enslavement, then secret genocide. Now Pharaoh commands all the people of Egypt. The genocidal policy becomes public. He stirs up anti-Israel sentiment. He says, every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And here is tragic foreshadowing. Pharaoh, uh, by this policy going public, Pharaoh has crossed the line in the sand. He's crossed the point of no return. Pharaoh recruits the people of Israel to kill the sons of, uh, uh, let me say this right. Pharaoh recruits the people of Egypt to kill the sons of Israel, but we know later in the story it's the sons of Egypt who will die. Pharaoh says, cast them into the waters of the Nile, and yet it's Pharaoh and his army who will be drowned. They've crossed the line now. Uh, the midwives are even trying to hold them back by not enacting his policy, but now that he makes it public, the line has been crossed. 
And I, I think there's a warning for us here. Notice that Pharaoh's not going around doing this by himself. He he, he's relying on ordinary Egyptians to implement his plans. God's plan works out through ordinary people, but Pharaoh's plan is also working out through ordinary people who are involved in the exploitation and the oppression and now who are stirred up uh, into animosity against the Israelites and to participate even in genocide. The Israelites are seen as a, a threat to national security. Okay? They're disruptive to the economy. And these promises of security and prosperity dull our moral senses. And I think as we look around, we see that in our own society. We live in a society predicated on the promise of security and prosperity, and our moral sensibility is dulled. So we need to be wary. We need to be careful. Okay. Uh, Lemony Snick, Snicket, is that, uh, you know, the series of unfortunate events? The, what's the first book? A Bad Beginning. Well, that's kind of what we get here in Exodus. We're off to a bad beginning. What do we see so far? Uh, the situation is totally flipped, okay? God's people are no longer being protected in Egypt, but they are now enslaved. A new king has arisen that's forcing Israel to serve him instead of serving their God, and he's enacting this oppressive genocidal policy. But what else do we see? We see the secret providence of God is at work even in the most dire circumstances. God's plan cannot be thwarted. He promised to Israel, I will go down with you. I will bring you up again. He's promised the same thing to us. I will go with you. I will bring you up again. And in fact, we've seen that. He's come down to us in Christ Jesus. He's risen again to bring us with him. We see some Israelites, even in this difficult circumstance, still fear God, and it enables them to live courageously through simple acts of faithfulness. And so this is set before us as a model. Do we trust God's promises? Do we live expectant in hope? Are we patient, trusting that his plan will work out in his good timing? Do we fear God, or do we fear men? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who creates and gives life, but you are also a God who redeems and fix what is broken. Lord, we thank you that we see this model of redemption, the beginnings that we reflect on here in Exodus 1. May we, Lord, be challenged to trust in you, the God whose plan cannot be thwarted. And as we fear you, may we too be courageous to live lives of integrity and simple faithfulness in each realm where you put us. Lord, at times the situations we find ourselves in make for difficult uh, ethical quandaries, and yet we ask that we would fear you above all else and so live in a way that is faithful to your commands. Amen. Let's rise.